The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. Welcome to a special holiday-themed edition of Serious Fun. I am your host, Dr. Brian Carr, and uh, per the fact that we don't really do anything the normal way around here, we're going to spend our holiday special talking about uh, 1988. And in 1988, a film hit theaters that would forever change the action cinema landscape, eschewing the traditional hyper-masculine, hyper-violent hero in in favor of a wise-ass, barely-holding-it-together cop trying to save a building full of 80s investment bankers from a group of German terrorists. 30 years later, we're still arguing about whether or not it's a Christmas movie. (laughs) Yes, that's right. We're going to be starting a new segment, or a new sort of sub-show here on Serious Fun. It's going to be, like, numbered the same as the other episodes, so really, I don't know what we're calling it, but... It's called Overthinking It, and we're going to essentially try to make the strongest, most over-the-top intellectual arguments we can for popular culture, and so I could think of no better thing to start with than the 1988 classic Die Hard. And so that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be overthinking Die Hard on this episode of Serious Fun. So I, of course, am your host, Dr. Brian Carr, Professor of Communication Information Science at UW-Green Bay. Um, joining me to analyze this Bruce Willis classic today are a pair of Serious Fun all-stars, uh, starting off with our first ever guest on Serious Fun, Dr. Michelle McQuay Dewhurst, professor of music at UW Green Bay. Hello, Michelle. Hi, how's it going? It's going pretty well. How are All you? Right, I'm good. Uh, also joining me, the guy who I believe has the distinction of being on the show more than anybody else. Woohoo! Mostly because you're right down the hall and pretty <laughs> yeah, easy to right. get a hold yeah. of. Uh, is Dr. Ryan Martin, chair of the psychology department, also at UW Green Bay. Hello, Dr. Martin. How's it going, Ryan? It's going pretty well. So, uh, you guys pretty excited to overthink Die Hard? I really am. I've been thinking about this all week. (laughs) So here's how this is going to work. Each of us is going to present our case for overthinking Die Hard in a particular way to go beyond any sort of acceptable bounds of responsible film criticism and explain why this is one of the most important ever through the lens of our respective academic disciplines. Now, a quick note before we begin. Despite the comment at the beginning of this episode, we're not actually going to be arguing about whether or not Die Hard's a Christmas movie. Um, the, the, and I'm kind of tired of that argument, honestly. <laughs> um, the, this is best left to Twitter and punchy novelty t-shirts. Uh, the official stance of Serious Fun is that Die Hard is one of the best action movies ever made. It is literally perfect, and it works any time of the year. But because of its strong thematic ties to the holiday, it is especially fun to watch during this particular 30-day frame every year. So that should keep everyone happy or at least insufficiently mad. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go around, and uh, I guess I've been picked to go first, so I'll set the tone. Um, and uh, the idea is that we'll kind of make our broad argument, our broad claim, and then support it um, with some specific examples, and then uh, we'll have some time for some discussion. So mine's going to be a bit... I, I wrote, I watched the movie again last night, and I've got like a page and a half, like single-spaced of notes. So let's see how this goes. <laughs> right. So here's my claim. And I'm going to go like point by point, so I'll give you guys some time to jump in here and there. So here is my claim. <clears throat> Die Hard is a feminist action movie, perhaps the prototype for one. And it is interesting because while it is certainly not the first 
feminist action film. Um, it is interesting that a film that is so often tied to machismo and the macho attitude is so incredibly and subtextually feminist. So let's start off with John McClane. John McClane, off the bat, not a stereotypical hypermasculine 80s action hero. You, know, you think Stallone, you think Schwarzenegger, these guys running around. Um, you know, and I watched uh, you know the, the throwback to the 80s action movie, The Expendables, right? Um, it, it kind of showed just how dumb that era of action cinema was because like these guys are just walking through gunfights and nothing happens to them. They're just like the biggest, strongest guys. <laughs> They're constantly in control, constantly outgunning everybody else. And that was what the the action movie landscape was. This was not that. John McClane um, was, of course, played by Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis, primarily known as a comedic actor. He does not look like the stereotypical tough guy. Um, he primarily was known for in the uh, television show Moonlighting. Lacked the ridiculous physique of Stallone or Schwarzenegger. I mean, he's in good shape, but he's not quite as roided out and muscled out as those guys. Um, and unlike those characters played by those actors, he is constantly in over his head and succeeds not because of brute strength or superior firepower, but because of his willingness to think critically critically, um, act rationally, and this is important, communicate with other people. And this is one of the things that sets him apart. Even John's tactical decisions about how he handles the situation are decidedly more feminine than the coded masculine actions you see other contemporary heroes take. And uh, as Zoe Stavry of anotherangrywoman.com suggests, quote, from the moment a hostage situation begins while John is on the toilet, he embarks on a journey toward femininity. Uh, as he realizes that something terrible is occurring, he makes a smart choice to run the F away, observe what is happening and seek help. He even tells himself this was the right approach and that to have gone for the quote unquote more manly option of running in and intervening, he would have gotten himself killed and probably others too. And he's right. She goes on to suggest that McLean's constant attempts to get attention and seek help are often ignored and not taken seriously An experience she argues <laughs> oh. all uh, women are all too familiar with. In fact... <laughs> She suggests that uh, McLean has much more in common with a character like Aliens Ellen Ripley than anybody else, any male hero of that time period, not the least of which is because they spend a lot of time in and around air ducts. And I think the idea <laughs> that um, air ducts almost kind of acting is like the kind of, uh, I don't know if there's like, uh, what she's getting at, there's like this idea, like, you know, the idea of the air ducts sort of symbolizing birth or rebirth or something like that. Um, but it is interesting that one of the most iconic images is him literally in this tiny little confined space. Right. Um, so, I mean, what do you guys think so far? Am I, am I overthinking this sufficiently or? I love it. I, so it does, it, it overlaps. So I'm not going to spoil some things I'm going to sure. say later. It overlaps with some of my arguments, but I hadn't been thinking of those arguments in terms of feminism. Right. I've been thinking about them differently. It's just the beginning here. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, I was, I knew you were going to generally go in this direction and I was trying to watch it through that lens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are a couple of moments where I was wondering, can we really do this? Because there's the argument about uh, Holly Gennaro versus Holly we're McClain. We're get okay, that, yeah. so so we'll, we'll 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 see how that how we it's talk about that. It's not perfect. Sure, sure. Oh yeah, and I'm not trying to hold it up to yeah. perfection, but you know, I think something that might go with that too, and maybe maybe I'm jumping on another point of yours, but the vulnerability that he finds mm -hmm. himself in because of the moment that the attack occurs and he's not fully clothed and he's mm -hmm. barefoot, and that, that's mm -hmm. going to overlap with other stuff I'll say. But, uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm convinced yeah, by this yeah. argument. So, <laughs> uh, that, and that vulnerability manifests in different ways. Um, so one of the things I find interesting about this is that unlike a lot of other action heroes of the era, John McClane actually grows Mm -hmm. um, his journey is that he becomes more, uh, kind of more in touch with his feminine side, I guess, for lack of a better mm -hmm. term. Um, he grows to respect his wife and her abilities. He realizes that she's basically holding it down while he's running around with a gun. Um, she pretty much helps to keep everybody else alive. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so okay sorry i lost my train of thought here okay um he even offers uh, going back to zoe stavri's point um he offers feminine emotional support and nurturing to sergeant al powell that allows him to regain the confidence he needs to ultimately save john mcclain's life in the end he even laments his inability over the radio to tell his wife that he loves her and to really say that he's sorry for the way he's acted so he opens up to another man in a very uncharacteristically uh, feminine way um, for most of the film, he's scared, he's overwhelmed, he's literally outgunned, he's screaming, he's not always in control of the situation. He is a survivor, he is not the aggressor, he is not the one who is in control. And this again, this discussion with Sergeant Powell over the walkie-talkie where he's asking Powell to tell uh, Holly for him how sorry he is and how much he loved her, it's therapy. He literally sees the value of speaking and opening up to another person. He's finally in touch with his feelings and even if all it took was multiple gunfights and severely bleeding feet to get there. <laughs> as a sidebar like the physical weariness and the exhaustion because like I saw somebody say well oh they make him indestructible they really don't mm-hmm. far from it mm-hmm. he gets the crap kicked now yeah. in later movies he becomes that, like a cartoon action hero but in this film that's a thing I want to like mention is that so often and this happens with a lot of great movies that we turn into um uh, that that get sequeled mm-hmm. that you forget how great the first one is because and why the it second was good. one and why yeah exactly and so you see that with Jaws you see it with Rocky you see it with all these movies I think this is an instance where the character changes so much and it's why those other ones aren't as good mm-hmm. you know because they forget that he was afraid of flying yeah. in the second one you know <laughs> that like <laughs> that I mean that that they don't necessarily build that in. Mm-hmm. The way, um, and it's unfortunate because he is indestructible in later movies, but he's not in this one. No. Yeah. He yeah. gets wounded. He gets shot. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, uh, and that tank top too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it starts off like clean and white. It is filthy by the end. Eventually he just loses it all together. Yeah, but like yeah. I was amazed because this movie takes place over the span of like a night and in the span of about 30 minutes, that thing goes from a pure white, fresh tank yeah. top to just like dark gray. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but one of my favorite parts that I noticed watching it again um, was when he finally has like, okay, so he meets Hans once before and like, you know, the, there's a scene that was Great added scene. just because um, they found out Rickman could do the American accent. <laughs> um, and so there's that cool scene where he, like, you know, he's like hands in the gun that's not loaded and all that. But um, I should probably note that we're going to be spoiling this movie a lot. So yeah. if you, if, if for some reason you haven't seen this movie, year old yeah, it's, it's like six bucks on Amazon. <laughs> just get the Blu-ray. Um, but uh, th- when he finally comes across Hans, he's not he's, he doesn't really have like a cool one liner or anything like that. He's bleeding. He's beating. He's just like, Hans! <laughs> he's just like, I'm so tired. <laughs> Let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's there's no I mean, there's a little bit of a joke where he's like, hi, honey. But that's about it. That's yeah. all he can manage yeah. at that point. Um, so yeah, like the idea that, you know, again, this idea of masculinity as a sort of fragile construct that gets sort of destroyed over the context of the film as he becomes and adopts more feminine characteristics, I think is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got more, but you no, can you yeah. jump into it. <laughs> right on. I'm, I'm having to rethink what I'm going to say because a lot of this is overlapping with, yeah, with I'm some sorry. Stuff. No, that's all right. I'm glad. But um, I, I had two things I was coming in with, so yeah. it's good that I didn't take any notes. So, right? uh, <laughs> And you mentioned Holly, and we got to talk about Holly because yeah. she does not get enough credit in this mm-hmm. film, I think, for the role she plays. Um, at every step of the way, the movie does go out of its way to remind us that how, how capable she is and how good at her job she is. The film's entire reason for existing is literally that she was good enough at a job to get a pretty sweet gig in this multinational corporation. Her ability to negotiate and stay calm under pressure saves countless lives and buys John time to play cowboy. Um, she even looks Gruber in his literal face telling him that she does not like him, she does not respect him, and she's the only one that is willing to actually be near him. 
and also manages to get special accommodations for the people uh, that she's essentially become the protector of. That's incredible. Yeah. Like the fact that they portray her as someone who is very good at this and takes no nonsense is really, really important. As Tom Burns from YourTango.com suggests, one could argue, quote, the entire film is just about John McClane's personal journey to prove himself worthy to this wife that he neglected. And I think that's absolutely <laughs> true. Right. Yeah, and it's all the more remarkable that scene is be- because women are supposed to be nice, mm-hmm. right? And she's not nice to him. No. And she is not really in the position of power because she doesn't have the guns. Mm-hmm. And yet she asserts herself and gets what she needs. And that's that's incredible. To come in into that situation without fear. Like right. Bedelia does a good job kind of like walking that line between showing that she's obviously scared, but also not demonstrating that. And that was such, that's an incredible little bit of acting there. Yeah, yeah. So, so and we should juxtapose that scene with the other what I would argue is that the most hyper masculine character in the movie is probably Ellis. Mm-hmm. And the I'm way gonna get to Ellis yeah. in a second. <laughs> and the way Ellis handles his oh, interactions as and it's and it's interesting. Now I'm thinking about the fact because they, they make reference to him being a cowboy. And I'm curious about so I don't I can't remember who so who does Rickman because he says I was always partial to well, Roy so, Rogers. So, yeah, he uh-huh. yeah because he, he says like you know John Wayne or John whatever Wayne. like that. And so the very and so what does McLean pick? He picks the one that's notorious for being the singing cowboy. Is that right? okay? That was my question. Yeah. Is, like last sequence shirts. He's not the tough guy that John Wayne was. Gotcha. That is really interesting. Yeah. So this your argument is holding together very nice. And the thing is, I, I got to give credit where it's due. I'm not the first one to make this argument, yeah. but I started thinking about it as I was watching a few years ago. I'm like, huh. So I started looking into it. I'm like, yeah, I wasn't completely nuts. Um, so let's talk about Ellis. Um, in fact, I would. Uh, one thing that's interesting is that pretty much every other man in the film, I would say there's three men in the film, actually maybe four. There's a lot of guys in this movie. It's kind of a sausage fest, but um, I can say sausage fest. Yeah, as well. No, it's fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's, uh, there's four guys. Um, I think uh, Takagi, uh, in the beginning, he shows that he is pretty kind-hearted. He's very reasonable. He's a father. You know, He, he, he dies, and it's sad because he's a good man. Mm-hmm. Um, he shows some real emotion he in does. that scene too. He does. I mean, when, um, he, when he's like, "You can kill me," I, I don't know it. You know, and yeah. it's like there's a quivering. Right. In his voice. He's, yeah. he's, he's being honest. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think Gruber is himself not a toxic masculine figure. Um, we can talk more about the complexity of that character in a minute. Um, John himself starts off a little bit toxic, but again, the film is about him growing. Um, and Al Powell, I think those yep. are the only because he literally will go out into the snow and get things for his pregnant wife. He's you know he's a very mm-hmm. generally sweet, good natured guy who beats himself up constantly over a mistake he made, right? Mm-hmm. As you would expect. Mm-hmm. The rest of the men in the film, <laughs> with uh, with those exceptions, are largely outsized caricatures of toxic masculinity. We start off with Harry Ellis, the epitome of eighty sleaze. Hans, Bobby. I'm your white knight. As sexually aggressive and kind of racist, he goes on a bit of a racist tirade when he's talking to uh, Hans, where he's like saying, he uses a couple slurs, um, who also totally sells John out because he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Mm -hmm. And so this uh, basically ends up getting himself killed because of his toxic masculinity. The FBI agents are violent, reckless men. Who one of whom cackles that he's reminded of Saigon, um, which is a pretty funny line because he's like, you know, I was, in, you know, like, Mario you Saigon? It's like, I was in junior high, right? Like, but, you know, again, like, he sees this as this fun. And what also implies, like, if he is this excited about being Ryan of Saigon, like, what did he do during the war? 
yeah. right? Like, um, <laughs> and they also there's also that line where they're like they're flying up in the helicopter and like playing this out, like you know we're gonna get these guys or else we're gonna lose maybe maximum twenty five percent of the hostages, and like I can live with that. Yeah. This is incredibly like they just want to blow something up and they don't really care about the human cost. And they all pretty much die. All these guys die as a result of their hubris. As Slash Film's Donna Dickens suggests, the overarching theme of Die Hard is don't be a macho asshole or you're going to get killed. <laughs> um, what do you guys think about that? Well, I'm, I'm thinking back to the cowboy line again because mm-hmm. that is, I mean, you might, def- or, or people would oftentimes like, that is the stereotypical cowboy, right? right. It's the, the person who just runs off sort of half-cocked or whatever mm-hmm. and to do whatever. And so it is interesting that they refer to McLean as the, as the cowboy in that in that context and then he's he's behaving differently mm-hmm. I'm, I'm i'm i haven't fully thought that idea out yet but i'm just still I, but I, walking I, through it and it, you know it's played off as a joke but it is interesting that he specifically calls out roy rogers yeah. in the film yep. and you know I, i'm not like an expert on roy rogers but my impression he was always he was never the tough guy hmm. western like like john wayne he was more of like you know singing kind of horse right. tricks that kind of stuff mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um I, I don't know. Am I, what, do you, what do you think? I'm thinking um, it, it ties back to your point earlier about communication, mm-hmm. that if the FBI had listened mm-hmm. to the intelligence that that Al Powell had right. gotten from John McClane, a lot of these problems wouldn't have happened. Right. Uh, and so th- it's it's that I'm going to forge ahead no matter what because I know what's best mm-hmm. kind of thing that absolutely gets them killed. Right. And, and, and again, like it also shows, I think, in some ways, like if we kind of take a more intersectional approach, you know, Al Powell as a black man is also not listened to. Right. Like right. they do not talk to, they do not understand. Like, you know, he's the guy who's been there. He reported, he saw a man literally fly out of the, out of the window and land on his cop cruiser yeah. and nobody listens to him. Like he's been in contact. <laughs> he's aware of the situation. Um, you know, the other thing too, there's one other guy we haven't mentioned. That's the reporter who ends up getting oh. information <laughs> and also basically, um, by doing so and doing the report, they go and talk to the kids, endangers Holly's life and John's life, and basically tells Gruber everything he needs to know about the McLeans. That is like, you know, again, like that's, I think, more of a comment on journalism uh, and then kind of like the sleazy sort of like do anything to get ahead aspects of journalism than it is toxic masculinity. But again, it's worth noting it's a male character doing this. It is not a female character. And um, what happens to him? He doesn't die, but he gets punched in the face on live <laughs> right. television by Holly McLean. It's great. Yep. <laughs> Doesn't he get in the second movie, or doesn't doesn't he get a restraining order against her yes. for assault? I'm gonna be honest. So here, here's Something where I'm like, gonna, like I've seen Die, like I've the same thing with RoboCop. I have with Die Hard. The oh. first movie is perfect. I have no interest in really going to watch Fair the enough. other. <laughs> I hear Die Hard Two is still pretty decent, though. It's it's decent in a different way. It's yeah. decent the way other action movies are decent. It's mm-hmm. far from perfect. Have, have you seen it? Sure. It's been a long time. Yeah. yeah. So he is he's on the same flight that Holly is on. Oh, that's right. So she yeah. actually gets to punch him in the face again. in that one um, because (laughs) so he's they're sitting across the aisle and and the premise of that movie is that her flight is like Mm -hmm. circling the airport and McLean's on the ground trying to Mm -hmm. help it land and they're on the same flight together so it's a bit of a coincidence we'll call back yeah (laughs) yeah Um, I also want to talk real quick about Hans Gruber Um, so you know we see a lot especially in this era of of action films of the idea that the villain is often perceived uh, as sort of effete kind of like coded homosexual um, to kind of offset the raw macho masculinity of the hero and like so this is like these things are code and so I would argue like you know Gruber is absolutely kind of a very put together villain he's very sophisticated mm-hmm. um, he's very articulate and careful about his thoughts but he also kind of subverts that trope because he's in charge and he's also very careful about how he makes his decisions in fact uh, uh the uh, woman I was talking about earlier, Stavri, she suggests that he actually demonstrates a more feminine management style than most 
arch villains do. He's, you know, he listens to his men, but he also kind of like tamps down their worst excesses and says, you know what, just let it go. Do not get angry. Let's, you know, there's a plan at work here. Let him run around. We'll take care of this. Our main goal is this. So it's a lot of that kind of like diverting things away. And so even as the villain, he kind of does end up demonstrating some of those characteristics because basically his plan just about works. Right. If McLean wasn't there and not getting incredibly lucky, um, (laughs) he probably would have gotten away with what he was looking for. Um, And again, like he's not, uh, you know, he demands loyalty not because he's angry or loud or violent but because he's showing a plan and asking them to kind of just go along with that plan and and that to me is again very interesting you know one uh, so with a movie this perfect you find yourself nitpicking yes and so i'm gonna i'm gonna pick some nits if yes. that's the correct <laughs> phrase um but uh, last wh- why doesn't he why doesn't he tell his men the plan it's always bugged yeah. me just a little bit that he keeps saying, well, don't worry, a miracle's going to happen, right. you know, and, and it, it feels like it's for us, right? I, it's a real deal for us. I do, but I also think that maybe his th- uh, thought is that if everybody's on a need-to-know basis, maybe there's less likelihood somebody okay. goes off plan or goes off script, just like, listen to me, I've got a vision. Um, yeah. You know, also there's less likely that somebody's going to betray or screw right. or something up or something like that. So that that's okay. my read. But yeah, most of it is just I, contrivances yeah. to keep the the audience guessing I, as to what he's actually trying to do. I wish he would have shared it with his like tech guy. Yeah, the I don't tech know guy. I feel name. like the tech guy. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I can't remember his. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember this guy. Uh, I, I know like he has some of the best lines oh, in the movie, lines, but yeah. I can't. I cannot remember his name. Like the, no. Theo. the thing, I, I don't Theo. That's Theo. right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. I can't remember most of the terrorist names because they pretty much exist to die. Like there's the one guy whose brother gets killed and like he's also held up in some of these articles as an example of toxic masculinity because he just can't let it go yeah. and his just absolute rage for John McClane ends up getting right. him killed in the end um, like pretty much twice actually yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, like you know but yeah mostly they're there just kind of be cannon fodder I think only mm-hmm. like two or three of them actually have names and motivations yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much Gruber and then just his goons right. yeah. they should have been wearing red shirts pretty right? much yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And like some of them just die really quickly. It's just like yeah. he's like, like John just runs by an elevator, ah! and then yeah. like two of them die. So it's like okay, he's pretty much even the odds in about thirty seconds. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is a credit to the movie though that I do feel, despite them not having names, that you you have a sense of like place mm-hmm. around. Like I know who they are, and I know kind of where in the building he is at a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Like that's part of like. And, and so there are that you see some of those nameless henchmen multiple times in the movies, and and kind of have a sense for like, okay, that's the that's the blonde one, or right? That's, that's the short haired guy with, who gets his knees shot out in a very gruesome way, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, that's, that's brutal. Um, so anyway, uh, so that's that's why I think it's overall uh, a very feminist film. It's not perfect. I mean, uh, there are uh, instances where McLean's very agitated that his wife uh, changed her last name. I think it's justified by the plot. I think it's justified by the overall arc. And I think that, you know, when she takes the name back, it's not necessarily a rejection of her uh, her success or her ambition. It's just more of an acknowledgement of the fact, hey, they really do care for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, there is like one kind of weird scene where he gets kind of agitated when a guy walks up to him at the party and just kisses him on the cheek, yeah. you know, which is coded a little bit as gay panic, but I don't think was really intended that way. Um, does it, does he respond by saying like California? Or yeah, is that the point? yeah, yeah. Which okay. I think so. I think is why I kind of think it's coded a little bit in that the 80s, way. But that feels a yeah, little, and, and so yeah. like you know, it's it's a product of its time in yep. in some ways. And I think ultimately, like I can kind of read it as not so much that he's 
It's just more the fact that if somebody walks up to you somewhere that you don't know and just kisses you yeah. on the cheek without your mm-hmm. permission, you might be a little bit, which yeah. again might add to the feminist read a bit a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, so yeah, these uh, and, and you know, like the idea that it also like goes out of the way to talk about the the challenges that professional women face in the eighties, like being tied mm-hmm. to their husbands' names, that kind of thing. I think so. Anyway, that is my argument. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what you, if you think that makes sense, but. I love it. Yep. It took it's 20 great. minutes. I'm on, I'm on board. No, that is, it's a, yes, it works. It works for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Fantastic. So, nice. okay, I've overthought it. Who wants to go next? <laughs> um, I could go. All right, awesome. Michelle, um, what is your overthinking of Die Hard? Well, I have two strands of overthinking, so I even overthought like, the process <laughs> of overthinking. <Yes>. Right? So, <laughs> so, this is what I do. Um, so there's a... You know, so I'm I'm the resident music person here, and so I have to to think about the way the music is not just soundtrack, but it's woven deeply into mm-hmm. the fabric of the movie, and there are certain structural things in the movie that echo the structure of the music. Um, and then um, to 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 really overthink, um, I'm going to make an argument that. McLean is a spiritual descendant of Beethoven uh, because there are some okay. uh, there are some pretty serious parallels in in their circumstances. Uh, so I'll start with the musical structural stuff first. Um, You're gonna need to dumb this down for me. Real hard, <laughs> so no, it's know. all right. No, <laughs> it's, I, be prepared for that. I think I can do it. I think okay, I can do you. it. Thank you. Um, so. Um, w- one thing that's unusual is that oftentimes the score comes much, much later in the process in a film, and the composer gets a rough cut and then makes some musical decisions in conjunction with the director after the film's been shot. But the whole idea of using the Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony comes very early in the process. Uh, director John McTiernan was inspired by the use of Beethoven Nine in Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. And what he really liked about that was this kind of subversion of the message of the Ode to Joy, and it's connected to violence. And he wanted to use elements of that in Die Hard, and he for a couple of reasons, the idea of associating this joyful music with this violent um, overtaking of the building um, was a kind of a, a way of, of playing around with, with stereotypes about music and that kind of thing. And he wanted to also give the, mo- the movie this sense of joy, otherwise it would be a pretty grim undertaking. <laughs> you know, so, so this comes early in the process. Uh, the composer Michael Kamen was really resistant to using Beethoven 9 in this way. He's like, hmm. you're, you're really messing with a masterpiece, right? And why, why would you do this and why would you throw it in an action movie? But he eventually relented. And so he knows going into scoring this film that Beethoven's Ninth is gonna be an important part of the film. And so he takes little musical ideas from the Ode to Joy and he weaves them into the film from very, very early on. And you you kinda have to, you know, you kinda have to know they're there sometimes because he's manipulating them in a way that Beethoven would manipulate elements of his own music, where he would take a small theme, repeat it, transform it gradually over time. Hmm. Um, and so that's a Beethoven-like process, mm-hmm. right? And so so Kamen is echoing that by taking small melodic ideas, just the first few notes of the Ode to Joy, da 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 you know, just mm-hmm. that much, right? Mm-hmm. And then tweaking it a little bit here and there and using it as this sort of undertone 
for what's going on in the film. Mm-hmm. And the first time you hear it is uh, in that way is when the truck carrying the terrorists is starting to approach the building. You have no idea what's going on with that truck, but you know something's up because there's this ominous music, which also happens to be this kind of manipulation of the Ode to Joy. Uh, so that that's in there from the beginning, and it prepares us for the full use of the Ode to Joy when the vault opens. And so you, you, you don't, you may not know it's coming, but you've been kind of mentally prepared for that music because you've been hearing little fragments of it, whether you realize it or not. So it's really deeply woven into the score. Um, well, one thing I want to just jump on that yeah. real quick um, is, is you know, the idea one that they really kicks in when they open the vault and they see all the bearer bonds. Yes. That I think is a really interesting kind of subversion of it, um, uh, because like this is like the triumphant moment for the terrorists. And mm-hmm. Also, like uh, I, I believe the screenwriter said that he wrote the script with the idea that Gruber was actually the protagonist. Like he was the the mm-hmm. hero of the story, and this is his story. And McLean's just kind of the one that's sort of like foiling his plot. <laughs> and I think that is yeah. kind of the moment of triumph for him. So that's a really interesting thing uh, way to think about it. Yeah, and, and that's interesting. So I will admit to being someone who I I and this is going to sound terrible, and I'm sorry, but I <laughs> rarely notice scores in movies mm-hmm, until mm-hmm. people bring them up later but that scene that Brian just mentioned is one that is burned into my brain right sure. is this moment and and that's the only time I like until we started talking about it I guess I hadn't really noticed that that was woven through but that scene is a very powerful one where the music to me really stood out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's very intentional. And they knew going into the whole process that that was going to be the moment. Right. And so when you know that, you can build up to it yeah. really gradually. Wow. Uh, so it's really, you know, it, it's uh, the music is as intricately plotted as the film itself with this really careful use of things. Uh, and then Cayman kind of riffing on the idea of let's twist happy music he uses winter wonderland Mm -hmm. in a similar way and there's this Hmm. great moment early on in the film where there's this low rumbling ode to joy thing in the bass and then there's this little riff that's a distortion of winter wonderland in these Hmm. trumpets and it's in a minor key Mm -hmm. and it just you know and, and it's happening simultaneously and he's really you know he eventually you know has embraced this idea of i'm gonna take this happy joyful music and I'm gonna mess with it for my my twisted purposes you know so it, it's really it's it's really ingenious uh, the way that works um, then sort of larger structural stuff um, I guess my big one here is that in Beethoven's ninth what we're seeing is a complete kind of subversion of what a symphony is supposed to be uh, the movements leading up to the last movement which is where the ode to joy take place run a pretty standard operation of what symphonic movements are supposed to be. They behave more or less uh, according to conventions of the time. Uh, The symphony starts in a minor key, D minor, but at the end, one of the biggest subversions is that he says, uh, the the text of the the, um, 
of, of the choral part and of the, the soloist who comes in first reject everything that happens before the soloist comes in and says, oh, friends, not these tones. Hmm. And so he's rejected everything that has come before musically. We get little fragments of what happens in the other movements. And then the Ode to Joy begin, and it's not in D minor as it's supposed to be. It's in D major. And it's this bright, joyful key. And now we have this text, the Ode to Joy, talking about the brother of all mankind and and all this you know let's let's all be united right hmm. uh, so it's this complete rejection of symphonic form to change the key at the end and to add this chorus and these soloists who are not involved in anything else in the music up until that point right and structurally the idea of running a playbook until mm -hmm. it's time to subvert it is exactly what happens mm -hmm. with the FBI playbook, right? right? The FBI shows up, they've got their playbook, and they don't realize that they are falling right into Gruber's plan. That Gruber's plan relies on the fact that the FBI will eventually show up and cut the power. And so it's that subversion of what you expect the process to be that works both for the symphony and for the film. That's great. <laughs> that's amazing. So, so you said you are the, truly overthinking. It. I, I love that, that. That's yeah. my job. This is what I was asked to do, right? Yep. <laughs> so perfect. So you said before that that the typically the score comes later in the development of a movie. Is that generally speaking? I mean, there obviously there are exceptions where right. where directors come in with clear ideas about what right. they want musically, but a lot of the time the composer is brought in much later in the process. Okay, yeah. so this is unusual, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And so this was this was McTiernan's idea, and and Michael came and at first was not on board <laughs> because you know, and it's and this will go to to something I, I talked about in a little bit. Um, the you know, this is a piece that has been held up as, you know, the pinnacle of Western culture, you know, depending on who you talk to, that this is a masterpiece. And right. how could you ever mess with this masterpiece of music, you know? Right. Um, and so for for this to be used in an action film and for it to be used to be associated with evil characters and you know, all of this stuff, you know, felt wrong at first to mm -hmm. Michael Kamen. But once he embraced it, he had fun with it. And it, it, it really right. works. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's structural stuff, but now I've got, <laughs> I've got a five point plan here about how okay. John like McClane <laughs> and Beethoven are like spiritual brothers. Um, so we begin the film seeing, uh, John McClane, who is estranged from his wife. He is unlucky in love. He's been separated from the woman he loves. Beethoven was also similarly unlucky in love. Um, he had uh, a love of his life who's referred to as the immortal beloved. We've we seen that movie. Yes, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, but you know, historically, we do not know who this woman was, uh, but we know that he had this, this love of his life that he could not be with because he wrote a letter to her that we have this record of, and he laments these circumstances that are keeping them apart. And so there's mm. this, this separation, and there's this yearning for something that isn't working out. So they're both mm. unlucky in love. Uh, they are both rule breakers. So I talked a little bit about Beethoven ignoring the conventions of what a symphonic form is supposed to be, um, breaking rules within the music. 
Um, John McClain also is on record as somebody who ignores orders. Um, there's that great moment where one of the terrorists says, oh, you can't kill me. Cops have rules. You're a cop. Cops mm-hmm. have rules. And he says, oh, yeah, that's what my captain keeps telling me. Right? <laughs> and so so he, he breaks the rules and, and, and offs the terrorist. He ignores instructions as people are st- telling him to stand down. He's like, no, I'm, 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 I'm working in here. I'm going to help. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ignore these orders. Right. So they're both rule breakers. <clears throat> they are both working under incredibly difficult physical constraints. Beethoven was deaf when he wrote the Ninth Symphony, um, and John McClane starts off barefoot and then gets his feet cut up and just beat up generally <laughs> throughout right. the process. So they are working through these, these incredibly difficult physical constraints that you would think would cause them to fail, and yet they don't. Um, they are met with resistance throughout the process. So. Obviously, the terrorists are in uh, are a problem for McLean, but so are the cops and the FBI because they keep either not believing him or uh, doing things that are going to make things worse for what's going on inside. Um, Beethoven, we hold the ninth up as this pinnacle of Western culture now. It got some really terrible reviews when it first really? was performed, and this is—I I have this handout that I give to my music history students when we talk about Beethoven Nine, and it's this compilation of terrible reviews of Beethoven's Ninth. Um, and there, there are too many to, to read here. I've got a bunch here, but but this is one of my favorites um, from 1825 from the Harmonicon uh, publication out of London. We found Beethoven's Ninth Symphony to be precisely one hour and five minutes long—a fearful period indeed. which puts the muscles and lungs of the band and the patience of the audience to a severe trial. The symphony we could not make out, and here, as well as in other parts, the want of intelligible design is too apparent. So they couldn't... So is this like the Pitchfork magazine of its time? (laughs) I mean, maybe. I'm not sure. I don't know the reputation of the Harmonicon, but this reviewer (laughs) did not like the uh, the, the Beethoven's Ninth. Um, You know, and I mean, there's another... uh, Providence, Rhode Island newspaper um, said that talks about the Ode to Joy specifically um, it opened with eight bars of a commonplace theme very much like Yankee Doodle (laughs) (laughs) and and a lot of critique about the Ode to Joy melody itself is that it's overly simple Um, Beethoven wrote something like 200 drafts of that melody before he settled on the exact melody huh. that's used in the symphony but uh the it was criticized early on as being too simple for for what beethoven does with it but that's uh, eventually people kind of realize that's part of the charm mm-hmm. right, is that it has that accessibility. he did it for a reason yeah absolutely right. um so so even the you know beethoven's ninth was met with resistance right. and a lot of critiques that well if he were able to hear what he wrote he would have edited right he wouldn't oh, have wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah oh yeah that's really mean <laughs> it's harsh it's harsh <laughs> um you know he puts the sopranos in the choir way higher than was typically done at the time and it was he was criticized as being too shrill um um, you know, and too too bright, um, but over time, of course, you know, people catch up, and we we get the and so now, you know, we kind of forget that it didn't meet uh, with a lot of approval um, at first. Um, so that was point number four. I've got, and the last point is ultimately, uh, McLean and Beethoven are considered to be heroes. They triumph over this wide array of bad circumstances, and they're held up as these sort of iconic figures. You know, McLean is an iconic action hero, and Beethoven is one of the most 
most acclaimed composers of all time. So, um, yeah, you know, spiritual brothers. I, I buy it 100%. Yes, I'm 100% on board awesome. with this. Yes. <laughs> no, it, but it makes a lot of sense because I, I, I love the idea that music is so important to this film, um, both, you know, and, and I don't think they set, uh, set out to make it like, well, let's make the journey of John McClane parallel that of Beethoven. No, sure. But it does work out in a very cosmic sort of way. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly from the music perspective, like the music is deftly woven into and like it is almost kind of ironic and funny when you hear like the little familiar notes here and there and it's like mm-hmm. oh, okay so the movie has this weird sort of tongue-in-cheek nature about it. like it never takes itself completely seriously mm-hmm. considering all the horrible violence that happens in it <laughs> right. mm-hmm. um but yeah that is that is really really interesting Nicely done. I want a Rotten Tomatoes for uh, reviews of Beethoven's work from this. <laughs> Some oh, listener, yeah. I need to oh, see yeah. like, what, what's his Rotten Tomato <laughs> score. But you know what's interesting is that um, there were actually some negative reviews of Die Hard when it first came out. I believe like, that. Like yeah. even Roger Ebert, I think, gave it like two out of four stars and said it was just kind of a mess and just kind of, it just like. Hmm. Um, but you know, I, again, like, I take issue with that. Un- yeah. yeah. Well, under, <laughs> you know, and, and so it's kind of seen just another action movie. And so again, underappreciated in its own yeah. time, we now hold it up yeah. as like the. You know, it's often held up now as like the. I I saw somebody say it was the last great script of the '80s or something like that. Mm. Um, and and so it certainly is had a tremendous impact on Mm -hmm. on everything that's come after, just like Beethoven's work did. It it is it is total. There are again there are there are nits I would pick with this movie. There's there are moments that I I think are maybe a little cheesy that don't work for me, but it is far from a mess, right? Yeah. I mean, it, there's nothing messy I'm, I'm, about this. I'm misquoting no. him a little bit, but he was not super fond yeah. of the movie. Yeah. But it, he might have changed his opinion over time. Right. But. It is, I mean, I think that it is, I mean, in this, I don't know if we're ready to move on to my overthinking. Are we ready? Sure, sure. Okay. Um, because I would argue, so I came prepared to talk about two things and focusing more on one, uh, but but it, uh, my one had a lot of overlap with, with Brian's. But I think the two things that really stand out about this movie to me, one is that the plotting and the scripting is perfect, right? They, they put so much exposition up in the first five minutes that mm-hmm. you barely notice because it's so perfectly woven into... Uh, to the to the story, and because they do so much showing without telling, mm-hmm. you know that that, um, and it and it's related to my second point, which is that we have one of the few, I think, action stars, and this ties up with very nicely with what Brian said, who is really truly vulnerable, and we see that from the opening moments mm-hmm. of. Um, the scene. And so I want to spend some time with kind of talking about John McClane's vulnerability because the opening shot, he is revealed to be scared of flying, right? And so the <laughs> first thing we know about him is that he's scared to fly, right? Mm-hmm. He's gripping the, the thing. Um, and, and yes, the other nice part is that that pays off later, right? That sets up the fact that he's barefoot and he's making the fists with his toes. Has anyone ever yeah. tried that? Like, I'm curious if that actually yes. works. I don't know. I have tried it, yes. Does it work? I don't know what was supposed to happen. <laughs> um, but, so it, I, it, maybe this is like a psychosomatic kind of deal. Right. He felt better yes. after he did it. Yeah. So. I, I too like had... Like a placebo effect. Um, I too had a time when I was scared to fly, and I thought, you know what? I will, uh, I will give this a go. And, uh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I can tell you one thing that didn't happen is I didn't end up having to fight terrorists uh, in, a, in, a, in a building. <laughs> so it worked. Yeah, so I guess. Um, so, no, so we, he is revealed to be uh, vulnerable from those opening moments. And, you know, and it, it's worth noting that. So we establish him essentially to be scared of heights. 
mm-hmm. in a movie where he is going to be taking on bad guys in a very tall building and that mm-hmm. heights are going to come into play over and over and over again. And each and every one of those scenes later on, we see that he is scared, right? Mm-hmm. And what's the scene when he's like, don't even think about going up in a tall building mm-hmm. again or if you survive this or whatever. You know, and so we that vulnerability comes back over and over. And that's one of my, my gripes with the later films is that we lose that, you mm-hmm. know, that mm-hmm. it's it's kind of forgotten that he's not indestructible. And I wonder if that was just kind of them buying into the sort of perception of who that character was and maybe even Bruce Willis kind of buying into his right. own nonsense a little yep. bit too. Right. Um, they, they just seem pathologically unable to have John McClane show weakness at any right. point from, because mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, I watched this movie and it's like, I came late to this movie, right? I did not mm-hmm. watch it like, you know, growing up or anything like that. So I saw it in the theater. Yeah, there yeah. you go. With my dad. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. So, so I, I just kind of came across it like after hearing about it for years I'm like alright I'll sit down and watch this and I fell in love with it like immediately like this is one of my favorite movies now <laughs> and this what's interesting is that you'd see the trailers and the commercials for all the other Die Hard movies and it's just like he's like jumping from like train to train and doing all this right. other stuff and it's just like this well, this looks really dumb but then in Die Hard it's like none of that is there yeah I mean, it, it just to the the climax of Die Hard Two happens. He's fighting the bad guy on the wing of an airplane, right? right. And so we've really lost the <laughs> the the threat of him being scared to fly pretty quickly. Yeah. Right. So he overcame that particular fear. But then we also so the next scene is him in the. Uh, in the the limo where he sits in the front seat, which is um, and and you it 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 nicely fits in because it's an opportunity for some more exposition. He and mm-hmm. Argyle are going to have this conversation that they wouldn't really have been able to have if he'd been sitting in the back. But it also reveals to us that he's a little bit uncouth, mm-hmm. that he is entering a world that he doesn't really fit into, um, where yeah. he doesn't really yep. belong. Um, he goes, and, and that's also where we learn uh, a lot of. There's a lot of of info in that scene that pays off later on gives us ultimately another one of the heroes of the film argyle who who you know has his own sort of save the day moment at the end there his arc is interesting because it's mostly sitting in a car yes (laughs) and and just like calling his friends and that's about it yeah yeah Yeah. until he eventually finds out what's actually happening right and there's a great thing musically too where um in the limo they play run dmc And then from there, John McClane goes to this party where there's a string quartet playing. And yeah. so that really helps underline the fact that like he is out of place. Yep. He's yeah, much yeah. more comfortable in the limo with Argyle listening uh, to Run DMC. Yeah, because they're both working class guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, but he's going to enter this world that he doesn't mm-hmm. know anything about. Yeah. Again, right. yeah. music really fits into the story. Yeah. yeah. And so then he's, we get to the uh, the place. There's, of course, the reveal, the the last name reveal, um, that we find out she's going by Gennaro. Which, and, and if McClane. I recall, like they don't really explicitly mention that. It's just him thumbing through yep. the, the directory mm-hmm. and not finding her under McLean. Yep. So he goes back to, and then he realizes, like, okay, so that's what happened. And so yep. it's asking you to kind of pick, put the pieces together yeah. yourself. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So it's more showing without mm-hmm. telling. And then, so we he gets upstairs. We have this scene where there's like an attempted emasculation from Ellis, where Ellis mm-hmm. is sort of trying to, to shame him and embarrass him. and and After t- hitting on his wife, after yes. harassing yes. his yes. wife. Yes, yes, Well, I'm going to put it out there. Ellis kind of deserved everything that yeah, happened. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's the real villain of the movie. <laughs> Groover so. by comparison was at yeah, least no. polite. Way, <laughs> way more likable. Uh, <laughs> So, so we have the sequence, but my, I think my favorite scene from a, from a character development perspective is the scene where, okay, so Ellis leaves, 
John says, you know, who is, I think this is more vulnerability. The first thing he says is he's got your eye on, he's got his eye on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says, that's okay. I've got my eye on his corner office. Mm-hmm. Or his private bathroom. His, yes. Mm-hmm. There we go. Mm-hmm. Um, so great. Which again, power move. Yeah. Power move on Holly's <laughs> part. She is great. Yep. She's it, every bit the badass John is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's, he's revealing his own fragility there mm-hmm. when he essentially lets her know, like, I am insecure about this and this other guy that mm-hmm. is working with you and interested in you. But then they have a fight mm-hmm. over the last name. And I like this fight because they they argue for a few minutes. She gets called away. Um, oh, by the way, in the middle there, we also see he misuses the word. Or he just he says Ramona instead of Pomona, I think, mm-hmm. the, the yeah. city. Oh. Another sort of, like, yeah. you don't he doesn't belong here. here. You don't belong mm-hmm. here. Um, so then I'm not going to walk through the whole movie, by the way. I know <laughs> I know I am so far. But, um, but he they have this fight, and then she leaves. And then he says... Nice going, John, you mm-hmm. idiot, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, I, so I didn't watch this movie last night. I watched it two weeks ago, as I always do at Christmas. I know mm-hmm. we're not getting into that, but um, <laughs> but he 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 gets mad at himself. And again, it's like, okay, so this is not the perfect guy that you see in so many action movies. This mm-hmm. is a a flawed person who's in the wrong place at the right time, or mm-hmm. whatever he says later on. Um, you know, and. Um, and, and we see that thread throughout that this guy is imperfect. And I've got a billion other sort of, for instances, the, the fight with, I mentioned the fight with Holly, um, the, the cut up feet mm-hmm. scene when he's, um, which is so brilliant and what a, what a fabulous, like tons of all the, all the exposition they gave us was worth it for that mm-hmm. payoff, like mm-hmm. that, that sequence. But then he, when he's sitting in the bathroom and he, he has that, um, heart to heart with Al mm-hmm. and says, and I mean, how many movies do we get where we see our hero? I don't know if it's fair to say he was crying, but we see him sort of tearing up and mm-hmm. do, delivering that. He's thing. struggling. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and where he says, you know, she's heard me say, I'm, I can't remember. I'm, uh, so, so, something like, I've, she's heard me say, I love you a million times, but she's never heard me say, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's a really powerful moment. And I think part of what's really important about that is it's being. Al's not the only audience for that. No, right? everyone's hearing that because they can and, hear everybody's got access yeah. to the mic. There's a strong chance Gru- I think Gruber actually does hear all yeah. of this, and because mm. he says at one point, mm-hmm. like, he's like yeah. how very touching or something like yeah. that. Yeah, but and but he also McLean says when he starts, he says when this is over, if something happens to me, find my wife. I can't tell you how. By then, you'll know how. So he mm-hmm. knows there's an audience, mm-hmm. and right. he still like spills his guts and heart mm-hmm. out there for while everyone. he's literally bleeding into the sink yeah. like yeah, yeah that's that's a really powerful bit of symbolism yeah. and this is that's just not something you see with action movies especially that often. era but not yeah. even today yeah so no and and so it's it's the thing that i like and that um this and I, and i think it's worth noting I've, as i was saying this and as we were talking i started thinking about another action movie um have you guys seen lethal weapon mm-hmm. yeah because there's some, it's similar. Another potential Christmas movie. Um, <laughs> well, technically, any Shane Black movie is a Christmas movie because <laughs> he always finds some way to work. We watched right. The Nice Guys recently, and it's a Christmas movie because there's a Christmas tree in the very, yeah. very end of the movie. Nice. Yeah. Uh, it has nothing to do elsewhere, but he had to fit it in somewhere. <laughs> that is good. Well, but it is interesting because that's another movie that I've been thinking about, where we see some vulnerability from mm-hmm. from the the hero. In the sense that he is suicidal and is PTSD, uh, right? Uh, well, in this case, it's his wife is dead. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and he's been com- it's been contemplating a while. suicide. Right. The interesting thing is, for whatever reason, and maybe it's a maybe it's the portrayal, and I don't know. For whatever reason, it feels different. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Mel Gibson's character feels much less vulnerable to me than John McClane does. And I can't figure out why exactly. And these are similar era, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. probably, Lethal Weapon's probably 85, 86, something like that. Um, so it, it feels... Um, but that that one feels different, even though I mean we do see we see the tears and and things like that. We see some powerful scenes. This one, and maybe it's the the giant audience that he's broadcasting it to. Maybe it's the fact that he's willing to be vulnerable in front of all of these different people. Yeah. Um, what do we got for Lethal Weapon? Uh, Lethal Weapon was eighty seven, so it would have come out a year earlier. Okay. A year earlier. Okay. Um, you know, so we actually see him again. We don't see this very often in action movies. We see him wounded in multiple ways. I mean, you mentioned Ryan him getting well, actually you both mentioned him getting beat up mm-hmm. over the course of the film. Just the absolute yeah. snot hammered out. <laughs> yeah, of <him>. yeah. <laughs> and and he, I mean, there's a there's a point when he gets shot in the shoulder, and we mm-hmm. actually see that. But I still think. I think too the the feet getting cut up. Part of what I like is that it's so simple, mm-hmm. right? It's just such a like yeah. it's a thing that you absolutely feel like someone should have been able yeah to solve or have not happened. But well, and the thing that's interesting is in the, in that particular injury because they could have him get shot a bunch of times or something like that. But the feet basically all he has is mobility, right? And yes. the idea that we have now made it so every step he takes causes further damage, further injury. It has now significantly raised the stakes for you know and also made it much harder for him to survive and and i think again there's that idea of vulnerability if this were you know a kind of more stereotypical like a schwarzenegger era film yes. um this would have been he would have just like shrugged it off and just yep. like murdered a bunch yep. of like yeah, you, know, yeah. you know just en masse terrorists <laughs> yeah. just no matter how bad he was bleeding we right? would not have seen him dragging himself into a bathroom mm-hmm. like unable to walk and then just like making those makeshift bandages yep. <laughs> and, right and seeing the blood trail mm-hmm. behind. I mean, that is a... He loses I mean, a tremendous amount of blood. Yes. I'm yeah. actually curious how, like, one of the things that, that <laughs> does bug me about the movie is oh. at no point, like, so he just gets in the limo and drives off. It's like, dude, go to a hospital. <laughs> right. Yeah, I thought about that. Like, did they just go home after this? Doesn't my my feel is after he kisses uh, Holly in the, the limo, he passes out and she makes our house right to our hospital. <laughs> yeah. It's like he needs, he needs blood. At that, the very least, he needs that, blood. Oh, yeah. Should have been the sequel. Yeah. 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 Actually, yeah. with him just, just getting hospital. a transfusion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the hospital. No. I, I will admit, I, I think in some ways, this is where I pick, where I, I have trouble. I think the last five minutes of the movie, I could do, I would like to see have done differently. Yeah. There's there's some cheesiness. It's a, some, it's a more stereotyped action movie yeah. ending than the rest of it. So I, I, I will disagree on one thing. I think, so, okay, so... For the arc of Sergeant Powell, yes. of, of Al, it makes sense the way that, like, the payoff of him yeah. shooting the other brother um, mm-hmm. while John ducks. And again, he protects Holly first and foremost. Right. Um, the idea of him, like, just shooting him, that makes perfect sense. It is him overcoming his mental right. block, his yeah. fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, an important thing for his healing and his grieving, mm-hmm. right? And but the way it's shot is a little bit fetishistic. Yes. Um, yep. And like <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The, the glamour shot of the gun going off. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. That is one thing I felt was a little out of character because of the nature of why this character had that mental yes. block to again glamorize and fetishize the gun as the mm-hmm. solution to the problem. Does feel a little bit yep. cheap, even though I love I love Reginald Vell Johnson in general, but I love him in that role and mm-hmm. just the humanity well, he, he brings to it is so, so important. Great. Yes. Yep, and I think that's worth noting too that like this is that that McLean's character he forms a 
relationship over the course of I, the I hope film. they hung out together because there's that yeah, part where he talks about like his you know he wants his kids to play with uh with al's kid when he mm-hmm. gets older like yeah. in my head that absolutely happened yeah. it could not have well, not they, happened so yeah. so you know he calls al in the second one mm-hmm. we get a brief glimpse of al in the in the sequel okay and so they're still hanging out they're a still year friends later. okay so i think it's a year to the day later they're mm-hmm. still at least talking so, sure. Yeah. I imagine he probably kind of falls to the wayside after all, because Belt Johnson probably got busy with family matters and all that. Right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. You know, that, so, that, that you can't turn down that network sitcom money. To be honest, <laughs> I don't know where they end up. Like, do they go to New York or do they stay in California? Yeah. Because in the third one, I think they're in New York City. That sounds right, but it's been so long since I've seen the other ones. I can't someday, someday I might just have to actually watch these, but I, I, yeah. I just don't want to taint the first one. Like that's yeah, the thing. Yeah, the first yeah. one's perfect. So I've, I've never seen four or five, to be honest with you. Uh-uh. Live, what, like, there's live like free live for your die hard, and there's like a good day to die hard. I mean, yes. The titles are great. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> sure, sure. Are they? Die harder. <laughs> die harder is fantastic. That is a great sequel. Die harder. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping the third one would be die hardest. Yeah. But <laughs> die hard with a vengeance is okay, but yeah, die hardest would have been better. I think to be honest when I went to see Die Hard with a Vengeance I don't think I knew I was what I was seeing or that right. I was seeing a third Die Hard movie I just thought it was another movie with uh, Bruce Willis in it that right then afterwards I was were, like, you oh, conf- yeah. were you confused by the Leslie Nielsen film Spy Hard <laughs> yes very, <laughs> also with, well no Mel Gibson's not in that but that's no, what they're Andy making. Griffith is yes. he's the villain which was great all right. We'll, we'll save that for overthinking Spy Hard. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I like it. No, I think the thing that I will note, too, and this is why I, I know you were paraphrasing before, but the, the, the script of this movie is so perfect mm-hmm. in that every mo- everything they give you in the beginning pays off later on. You know, that we yeah. see it over and over and over again. They, so um, Pop Culture Happy Hour just did a 30th episode thing on this, but everything from the the fact that, that Holly changes her name is important plot-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that she puts the picture down the way she does when she's mad at him yep. is important And the dramatic reveal of Gruber flipping yeah. it back up and that's what, yeah. the moment we know he's put it together. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it is all... I think he put it together just before then, but that was the confirmation. Yes. Yeah. Yep. yeah. It is all important yeah. Plot-wise, there's not a just, wasted moment, in no. this, which is incredible. Even Ellis bragging about the Rolex yep. that mm-hmm. Holly received—that yep. watch is very important at the end of the right. film. Yes. Yep. The, and the symbolism, yeah. the symbolism of her literally detaching that from her wrist yep. to save her life, yeah. is is powerful. And uh, fun fact about that: I was reading. Um, so you know, uh, so they filmed it with dropping uh, Rickman on from uh, like onto essentially a green screen, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Footage, yeah. um, and apparently, they dropped him before he was ready. So that was the first take they did, and he was legitimately terrified. So that's why uh, that's not him acting; he's legitimately scared. (laughs) But and so they're like, I think they're like, we got it done the first take. Let's not do it again. He's probably like, thank you. Yeah, right. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, I did. um, I I remember watching the making of that at the time, Mm -hmm. like or seeing that. Yeah, it's an iconic Um, scene. Like, there's just so many iconic moments. Like um, when he does the Yippie Kaye line. Um, my wife great. just leans over to me. She's like, iconic. I'm like, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They changed that in the third one. They yeah. dropped the 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 second part. He uh, just yeah. says yippee ki because it, yeah. it went down to a PG-13. Yep. Oh, sure, and I think, sure. the, and then of course there's the Mr. Falcon and yes, yeah. 
Yippee-ki-yay, Mr. Falcon. <laughs> I think there's a melon farmer. Maybe I'm getting my movies confused, Just, but they've tried a couple different ways to edit, make a TV yeah. edit. I don't yeah. know. So does somebody find that watch, you think? I want to know about the journey of the watch. Where does oh, the yeah. watch... I assume it was it much the same trajectory as the journey of Hans Gruber. Okay. Uh, it probably landed <laughs> so pretty close. Nearby. So I'm, I mean, those Rolex, they made to take a look and keep on ticking. Uh, no, that's Timex. Timex. Okay. Um, yeah. But I, I, wow. I'm, I'm sure it's a well-made piece, but I don't think it's going to be usable. <laughs> no, huh. no. I'm, I'm envisioning... That one of like the coroner found this watch laying next to pocketed it, pocketed it, sold it, <laughs> sweet, sold it later. Yeah. If this movie, were, if this movie were made in uh, uh, 2018 That's instead of 1988, I'm pretty sure that you would have had a scene of somebody yeah. selling it on eBay. Yes. <laughs> You need to have one of your students, Brian, make a short film about the watch, about, about what happens to the watch. I next. would watch that movie. I, me too. Me too. So this is the best idea we've had. Yeah. So I'm going to spend the rest but of my day you... thinking of a name for it. Did you have other thoughts you wanted to bring up? or uh... um, Not necessarily. I think there was something I meant to say about uh, about that scene, the, the dropping scene, or the Ellis scene, but I can't think of what it was. Yeah. I do love that he orders a tab, by the way. Every yeah. time I see that. And, and, and like just, and it doesn't even like get the glass fold up, filled up all the way, just a little bit. Which yeah. that's, I think that's the thing that bugs me, just in a really weird way. It's like, why don't you just... I mean, I, I think the thing was they knew they were going to kill him. Yeah. So it's just yeah. like, let him have a sip. We're not going to waste an entire can. I just want to see a terrorist <laughs> just drinking the rest of it later. Yeah. like, I'm thirsty, man. What about me, Hans? <laughs> That's a power move. That is a yeah, power I'll move. Yeah, I'll get you a tab and then yeah. I'll just pour us. It's a lot of just people pulling power moves left and right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think the only one that doesn't pull a power move, well, no, I take that back because you have the part where he kills the one brother, sends his body down. And my wife's like, what does he write? on this because he writes yeah. and now I have a machine gun ho 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 what does he write it with and I'm like I'm pretty sure it's his blood <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know what else yeah. is available I never once thought in my head it was lipstick but I don't I know I guess why. that could work too <laughs> that doesn't make any sense I guess right. I think it would make more sense than blood but yeah, yeah. but and the, also is less gruesome because that's where that's where John McClane turns from just sort of psychological warfare right. to outright it, psychopathy yeah yeah but the like the blood like if it were if you were really gonna go all in on the blood thing like the letters should not have been as neat as they yeah. were yeah it probably so was like a why, marker or yeah, lipstick or yeah, something okay but, so so John's not quite so creepy <laughs> so but still gonna, power move I, yeah, I yeah. will say I feel like in some ways that I, okay so we should we should talk about whether or not that's consistent with the message because that's a bold and actually kind of dumb move right it's incredibly dumb right so it, but in that, a way maybe not let's talk about it yeah so yeah. It, it just feels like okay so you've really revealed yourself and mm-hmm. told people that you know it's 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 actually kind of like a, a cowboy mm-hmm. uh, in the other sense <laughs> no. you know it's a, that, it's a decision i don't think john later in the film would have made yes it's a decision that yes. john at that point in the film makes yes mm-hmm. okay so it, it it still works we can just say he hadn't gotten there yet but right. one could argue that it was a, it was a calculated tactical decision because he knew it was going to piss them off right, right? And we see how much it affects the other brother. And, you know, there's that scene where he comes in, just like, just starts smashing up the bar with the butt of his gun. And that's how Holly knows that John's alive. Because who could possibly make somebody that angry other right. than John McClane? Right. And, and, you know, to be fair, he's had pretty good reason to be really mad at John McClane. Not only did he murder his brother, he literally sent his body back down in a Santa hat with a taunting message written on it. I get it. Like, yeah, I get yeah. why he's mad at John. He's got every right to be. Oh, yeah. 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 
Maybe um, that's the other film we need to make. Maybe. Need just die the, Hard from that guy. So my, <laughs> uh, my wife actually suggested we need uh, Gruber Begins. Like, we want to see how Hans yeah. Gruber starts and how he assimilates or, like, just sort of gets this group together. And I don't know if, like, you get anybody to replace Rickman, but no. that would honestly, like, a Hans Gruber origin story might potentially be pretty interesting. Yeah. Is that? Especially at that time period in Germany and everything. So. Is that one of Rickman's... Uh, it was his first, breakthrough. It was. Um, he came to success pretty late in life. He yeah. was... Uh, he didn't really have a big breakthrough as an actor until, gosh, I don't know how old he was when he made this movie, but it was later than yeah. most actors get their big break. So, because he is so he's fantastic, good. he's so good, yeah. he's fantastic in everything. Yeah. But he's yeah. amazing yep. here. Like you can yeah. see why this was his big break. Yeah. Um. So I, I guess uh. So we, we talk about the idea of like a, a prequel. Um. You know, we're we're in an age where everything mm-hmm. that was good once gets remade. Mm-hmm. Is there any way you could remake this movie? My my concession yeah. is you can't. I would argue no. You should okay. you should not. Right. That way. I think it will be. I think you can make movies that are thematically similar. They just tried with the one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Sky, which, which Skyscraper? One Skyscraper? Skyscraper. Oh, with, with the with rock. The that's rock. right. They did. Oh, There's right, a, have you right. seen there? Have you seen it? No. no. So it is terrible. And I would <laughs> very much. Uh, I, I do remember. I have some, so go ahead. I have well, some thoughts on this, but go ahead. There are, there are very, there are quite a few similarities i mean they, they actually try to build in some of the same themes i mean there's the the the, the, the main character does have similar vulnerabilities mm-hmm. um his his the, the only He's an amputee thing, right yes yeah um and he and the, we see when that happens to him the acts or the, the the violence that leads to that and we see him actually crying like there are mm-hmm. some similarities there we also get that his wife is a is a kick-ass mm-hmm. um you know like superhero herself there's a lot going on in there that's pretty cool but it it does not work <laughs> it is not do you a good think movie. that part of the reason it might not work is because it's the rock I, I and did. i have and this yep. is not meant to be a slight on him i think he's oh, a fantastic he's, actor i really yeah. like him um but he is not believable as the guy who's overwhelmed in a situation mm-hmm. that you know like he because he's the rock yep and yeah. and i wonder yeah. if that's also part of why they kind of had to do that um where they actually did make him yep. uh, an amputee kind of like maybe like level the playing field a little bit it's like okay so <laughs> yeah. maybe if we take one of his legs and make that a plot point maybe now it's believable these guys right. might have a chance against him yep i, I do think yeah. that's where yeah. they're, i mean there's a billion reasons why it doesn't work but <laughs> why the movie doesn't work yeah. but i do think i'm still going to watch it you know that yeah. like yeah. i'm going to have to watch it at some point because the rock should. doing a diehard knockoff is something <laughs> yeah. i'll probably need to watch yeah. right and it's not right. just diehard there's some other there's towering inferno mm-hmm. kind of built into maybe a little bit of the fugitive yeah <laughs> there's a lot of um it is but it is it, so they they have done something thematically similar mm-hmm. i i would suspect that no one's going to try and remake die hard i bet someone's going to try and do a prequel of die yeah i could see that. i i and i, I think yeah. it has to be gruber i think that's yeah. the only interesting story like i don't think mclean has an interesting story to tell as a film yeah. prior to the events of this one baby right. mclean baby mclean <laughs> maybe like yeah maybe a little kid mclean yeah. getting yeah. into like uh, you know trying that's to escape be, bullies or something but gonna be like yeah. muppet babies yeah but. die hard babies but no it, <laughs> <laughs> but but I think like you know again like part of the reason I don't know I don't know if Michelle, uh, um, Michelle if you had any ideas or things you want to jump in but I'm I've just been sitting here for the last couple of minutes thinking if you were gonna remake Die Hard who would you cast as right. John McClane and I don't have an answer to that I mean it'd probably be Chris Pratt or something right yeah. like but, oh yeah maybe no, but he's good. but but again like I don't it's he's we've already seen the dude is very imposing physically like he can be right and again like it just yeah. doesn't he doesn't have that kind of there's like a schlubbiness to Bruce Willis yep. that you know he's not a, he's not schlubby but there's an aura of schlubbiness yeah. to him that makes this work mm-hmm. yeah 
I could, yeah. No, I, I think you're right, though, that that is probably who. Yeah, that'd be my first guess. Yeah, I could no, see I... a Ryan Gosling in that kind of oh, role. Gosling. Yeah. Just <laughs> because I like him in everything. Sure. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I could, I don't know, maybe that would work. Yeah. Then I just like, I just want to watch Drive again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. Like, I, I just think that, like, a big part of it is that it has to be in the 80s because. Mm-hmm. Number one, a lot of the plot requires it to be in the 80s. Right. Mm-hmm. If you had cell phones, for yep. example, right. the movie falls apart. Um, yep. He's just like, hey, I'm up here. You know, I'm going to drop a pin. Come find me. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's not going to work. But I think also just the culture and the context in which mm-hmm. it operates. Like so much of the film relies on the fact, OK, so we had, you know, the rise of radicalism in Eastern Europe that Gruber mm-hmm. uses as cover. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. We had, um, you know, the role of women in the workplace. It's still very much like, you know, we haven't completely gotten past it. But in the 80s was still a different time than it was now. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually wonder, like, if you could do like a female version of Die Hard, if maybe that like, you know, Jane Ah. McClain instead of John McClain. (laughs) (laughs) Jane McClain. Uh, Now, who would you cast in that role? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, now I have to think about it. Yeah. If you're listening, you're probably somebody's probably yelling at the podcast right now. I'm gonna yeah. think about that one. <laughs> um, Kristen Wiig, maybe no, that wouldn't. I, I don't. I don't. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think it'd be cool to do something like because we've had other movies that have similar takes, like The Raid, for example. Just like the idea of a couple yes. cops like going through uh, just an entire building of people that are out right. to kill them. You know, the the most recent Judge Dredd movie did something similar. Yeah. Like it's it's a it's yeah. a good formula. Yeah, I mean, I so I I have thoughts about remakes and about sequels. And, uh, yeah, and and one of them is just in general. I think a thing that I really hate, and it, it comes up a lot when I'm talking to students, is that when you take a movie that was really great mm-hmm. and you make a bunch of sequels, mm-hmm. the later generation ends up forgetting or not knowing right. that the first one was really great. Right, my exactly. Students, my students don't understand that the first Jaws movie is legitimately phenomenal, mm-hmm. right? They think it's a shark movie, you right. know, which, mm-hmm. I mean, it is a shark movie, but they don't understand that the first Rocky mm-hmm. is one best picture, you know? Right. And, yeah. and and movies like this, and uh, like Die Hard and, and some others, I mean, Robocop you mentioned before, The Exorcist, frankly, has mm-hmm. like three remakes, right? right. Uh, not remakes, but three... Um, Jurassic Park, I think, yes. is a movie that has not necessarily yeah. benefited from having a ton of sequels. Yep. No. Um, <laughs> to Diminishing yeah. Returns. And it, and so it ends, up, it ends up really kind of destroying the the original in some ways mm-hmm. that, that are the and and I so I think that's troubling and so and and I mean I think it's already passed with Die Hard I mean I think with the the number of sequels yeah. we've had is has sort of undone that but um it's I don't know it ends up making I feel like it's just too bad yeah. I, I think like maybe there's something in ironic reclamation of Die Hard in some mm-hmm. ways because like when I was, I was looking around as I was studying as I was preparing for this like there is a Christmas, like a children's book styled version of Die Hard um, that is presented as a book you would read to a kid at Christmas. I mean, you don't because it's violent and there's curse words in it and all that, but it is presented as a storybook. Um, you know, even the uh, cover art for one of the 30th edition uh, or 30th anniversary editions of the Die Hard Blu-ray is like made up to look like an ugly Christmas sweater. Nice. Um, there's they, They've leaned into sort of the irony a little bit and I wonder if like, you know, Die Hard the musical might potentially work. Oh. And, the, and Michelle is there a way we could start working on that yeah. right now? Oh yeah. man, give me the rights. We'll work on it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's actually um, it works so well for cop rock. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember? 
<laughs> do you remember Cop Rock? Oh my God, I do. I do. I show my students clips from Cop Rock every now and then just because. <laughs> there's a um, there's a really good uh, version of Twas the Night Before Christmas that Jake Tapper, the CNN reporter, did on Twitter. And I think I sent it to you guys. Yes. I, I was going to read it, but I, I think we're already probably running long as it is. Um, but it's worth checking out. Um, it, he goes for it. And it's a really yeah. good sort of retelling of Die Hard and that style. So I, I think that I wonder if like if you're going to revisit it, maybe that's the approach is yeah. don't damage the original film but kind of find new ways to kind of like right. poke at it and yeah. yep. you know interpret it in different ways maybe yeah um so any other last thoughts on die hard or any any other things that you know it's pretty near perfect yeah, yeah. i i will say this the reason i i know we said we weren't going to get into this i'm just going to say one okay quick thing. <laughs> go ahead the reason why i like to think of it as a christmas movie is that i get a yearly reminder to sit down and watch it Sure. And that is important. Mm-hmm. You know, that I, once a year, my wife and I, we literally keep it with the Christmas movies because we like to sit down mm-hmm. and just watch Die Hard the same way we watch Love Actually and Christmas Vacation and others. And so, whether it's a Christmas movie or not, it's nice to have a reminder to sit down and watch a perfect movie. Sure. Yeah, yeah it works for me. Um, you know, and I, I appreciate it because yeah, there's a lot of stuff blowing up and there's a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of things, but there but there really is an emotional core to yes. it that supports everything that happens and and it it you know, the music's part of that and the the characterization is part of that. And so it it transcends just, you know, big dumb action movie mm-hmm. and that's why it holds up. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, just again, I think like thematically and in terms of the story and the development, like I think there's an argument to be made that it's a, that it could be a film that fits into the Christmas canon beyond the fact that it just happens to take place at a holiday mm-hmm. party. Yeah. Um, you know, the idea of reclamation and reconnection with family and that kind of thing is, I think, also part of it. But that's about as far as I really want to go with that argument. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, well, thank you both very much. Um, how can people, if they want to find out more about the things you do, uh, if they want to reach you, want to plug your Twitter, any projects you got coming up? Oh man. Um, I've got some, uh, I've, I've got a film score coming up in April on campus. Oh. Um, what, can, you, can you tell us which one? Yeah. Uh, the film is called man with a movie camera. Uh, oh. and it's a, it's a documentary styled film from 1927. It's a day in the life in a Russian city. And it's this kind of stream of consciousness, uh, you know, morning till, till night, nice. uh, slice of life. And, uh, so I'm, I'm writing a score for that. That's going to be performed on campus in April um, and uh, if you want to find out more about that um, I guess go to the UWGB music webpage and there are more details there and uh, yeah I've got some work to do over the holiday break to get that ready Very <laughs> I mean the last one was Metropolis that turned out fantastic yes. so I'm, I'm looking you. forward to seeing this one too thank yeah. you and Ryan well, I'm first going to plug the 630 series because mm-hmm. um, uh, I'm a newbie to that s- series. And I went last week, Michelle, and it was an absolute treat. Oh, so can you, thank I, you. I will tell you within approximately four minutes, I was regretting not bringing my children. Mm. Um, so <laughs> Bring them next year. We'll do not, it again. <laughs> we're not going to make that mistake again. But um, just wonderful from start to finish. Well, so thank, thank you for that. Uh, people can find me. I'm on Twitter at RyCMart. That's R-Y-C-M-A-R-T. You can also find my two podcasts, All the Rage and Psychology and Stuff, at uwgb.edu slash podcast. Fantastic. And we'll work on Die Hard the Musical along the way. All right. (laughs) Well, that's all for Serious Fun. As always, I'm Dr. Brian Carr. Thank you for joining us. Have a safe and productive or whatever holiday season. Until next time, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker.
You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, visit uwgv.edu forward slash podcasts. Come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs.